welcome to the Modern Mind Huff Podcast. I am your host, Richard Huffman, expert in all things Modern Meinhof. This is the only podcast devoted to, yet unaffiliated with, the Modern Meinhof Group. Um, we talk about left-wing German terrorism of the 1970s, student radicalism, and other related ephemera. Um, today's podcast features an interview with my mom and my dad. Um, uh, and the reason I'm interviewing them is because they were sort of part, a small part of the history of left-wing German terrorism of the 1970s. My dad served as the head of uh, the U.S. Army's Berlin Brigade um, bomb disposal unit uh, in 19, from 1970 to 1972. He was, we arrived in Berlin approximately just a few days after Andreas Bader was broken out of custody, literally a mile from where we lived, um, and thus started the so-called Bader-Meinhof group. And we left Germany not too long after Meinhof, uh, Bader, Enslin, and the rest of their cohorts were arrested in 1972. So we were there at a very auspicious time. And while we were there, um, friends or cohort of the Bader-Meinhof group, which was a group called the June 2nd Movement, was actively placing bombs all over Berlin, including a bomb that easily could have killed my mother and a bomb that was pretty clearly directed towards my dad and his crew, which he's going to talk about here. Um, it's a pretty interesting time. I hope you enjoy the interview. My dad is a, was the perfect candidate for this job because he had to have a very high security clearance because he dealt with nuclear weapons at various points and, and other stuff. So he just never really talked about his job much. And um, you'll get a little bit of that here in this interview because uh, getting answers out of my dad sometimes is difficult. Um, I tried my best not to make these yes-no questions, yet he manages to answer several of them with a yes or a no. Um, but still, nonetheless, I'm very proud of my dad's time um, um, working on behalf of America, so to speak. And, and I'm very proud of uh, his time saving the life of my mom. Um, so I hope you find this uh, interview interesting, and especially now, because um, as, as you'll find come up in this interview, um, this past week, Verena Becker, um, former member of both the June 2nd movement and the Red Army faction, was arrested in conjunction with, or in um, association with the murder of federal prosecutor Siegfried Buback in April of 1977. Well, this woman also very clearly was one of the people... Uh, laying all the bombs that were uh, trying to kill my dad and laying across Berlin that my dad was um, diffusing. So um, this past week brought a real kind of gut punch to me um, as as it brought up this aspect of my family's history. And, and it's interesting to hear my dad and mom's take about that news as well. So I hope you enjoyed the interview. Okay, I am here with my dad, Chuck Huffman former chief warrant officer in the United States Army, and my mom, Vicki Burkholder. And I'm going to set the stage a bit. So um, so we're going to talk about Berlin, 1970 to 72. You guys had been married for about five or six years. My older brother, Mitch, was about five, and I was two. Um, previously, Dad, you'd been stationed at Fort Vancouver, Washington. That's where you and my mom met. And later, you were stationed in Fort Greeley, Alaska, um, you served a year in Vietnam and you were running, I think it was the largest ammunition, American ammunition dump in Southeast Asia. And then you're transferred to Berlin, right? 
Okay, so what was your job in Berlin? What did you do? I was chief ammunition officer for the Berlin Brigade. So what does that mean? What 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 does being the chief ammunition officer entail? Oh, I received, I stored, and I issued all ammunition that was handled in Berlin. So we're talking both like uh, small handgun bullets to rock or to uh, to mortars and ordnance and stuff like that, right? Up to 155 millimeter. So um, how much how much ordnance are we talking about? Oh, probably about 70 to 80 tons. Um, and on one level, you've often described it kind of as a joke because you said that the U.S. military was there to defend against the Soviets, I guess, taking over and invading West Berlin. But really, there was like a million Soviet soldiers on the border or something crazy like that. I mean, how how long do you think West Berlin would have held out had the U.S. military, had, they, had the Soviets decided to attack? About the length of time it would take for a tank to run from one side of the city to the other. So really, it was all diplomacy that was keeping the Soviets out, not necessarily you guys. It's what they call the tripwire. What do you mean by that? We were the tripwire. Yeah. for You're talking about for the whole Cold War. Yep. Um, so how many people worked for you in Berlin? Mm, I think I had about uh, 10 military and... 15 civilians. And what were some of the jobs that they held? Well, we had an EOD team, which was six people, and and I had people that worked for me in the ammunition depot. And what is EOD? Explosive Ordnance Disposal. So these are this is teams that were designed specifically to defuse bombs, to render munitions inert that was that that are potentially explosive stuff like that well we were trained in school for six months to identify disarm any ordnance including all foreign ordnance as well as nice american ordnance uh anywhere we was at so and then and in addition to that also um, improvised bombs, so bombs that people are making, in addition to military from around the world. Yep. So, where where were you trained at? Indian Head, Maryland, the Naval Propellant Plant. And um, tell me about that training. Well, it was a lot of book work and a lot of hands-on playing. So, what was the hands-on plan kind of like? Well, they put a piece of ordnance out there. We'd have to identify it and make it safe. So, you know, I've read some books about that and the things that it's still out there, the training is still out there. And the way they describe, they describe a couple of things. One is there's a pretty high washout rate. Was that true back then? No, we had about 30 people in our class and I think 12 of us graduated. That's pretty high. That's a 60, 70% washout rate. Was, was it because just the, the, the um, book work was too hard or was it just too stressful? Probably a little of both. Because, you know, reading some of these books, I can't, um, like nowadays what they'll do is they'll set up, they actually kind of set up like a meth lab and they have all kinds of stuff where you go in there with all kinds of booby traps from booby traps under the floor to this and that. And your job is to systematically go through there. Did they have stuff like that when you were there? Yeah. So what was it like? Do you remember a specific day where you had to go and and, uh, find a bunch of devices and render them safe? Yeah, they had one like that that. 
uh, gives you a lot of thinking to do to get it safe. Tell me about it. Oh, they've got pressure devices, pressure release devices. And then they had a collapsing circuit and a briefcase that threw most everybody. Did it throw you? Uh, I didn't actually work on it. Other people in this class did. So did you get did you get uh, training in defusing nukes? Yeah. So what was that all about? What was that like? It was a lot of more book work and a lot of... Did you ever have to yeah. actually directly work with nuclear weapons? Yeah. What was that kind of like? We're talking about actual ordnance in the in the European theater, right? No. Where where did you work with them? Oh, an ordnance depot in California, on the border of California and Nevada. Um, so prior to Berlin, there wouldn't seem to have been much call for defusing bombs, or was there? Did you ever defuse any bombs prior to Berlin? Oh, we did some... Uh, on some homemade devices that some people had. So what was the deal with them? Was it just somebody... Oh, one guy was going to kill his family or his wife. He put a deal between the screen door and the front door so when you open the screen door, it'd go off. And, um, my God, and where was this at? It was over in Portland. So this was when you were... Um, this was when you were... Uh, we're, we're stationed at Fort Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, so tell me about a typical day at your job in Berlin. What what might you do? You're showing up, you head over to the to the depot, and what would you end up doing a typical day? Basically sit in the office and take calls and do whatever there was to do. That's my recollection. My vague, vague recollection is you guys sitting around laughing all the time. Did you didn't have a whole lot to do, basically. No, it pretty well run itself. So, okay. So, Mom, tell me what our home was like in Berlin in 1970. Oh, well, um, we lived on the top floor of a three-floor walk-up. Um, a big apartment. It was actually quite nice. But it had actually been renovated. Before that, it was... Wasn't it maid's quarters originally? No, no, maid's quarters were down in the basement. Really? Yep. Okay, well, that isn't how I remembered it. But anyway, um, it was pretty big. It was pretty nice by, uh, definitely by um, German standards. And, um, you know, for over there, um, I had local German friends and, their homes weren't anywhere as nice as ours. So, so what was Berlin like in 1970? What's your recollections of the city? I know you used to travel into the city quite a bit and visit. Well, I loved it. I attended Goethe Institute um, down just off of um, the Persendam, and um, which was a German language school. And so, yeah, I was going down every day. I did that for about four months altogether, I think. And um, and uh, I was going to, I I wasn't even preschool. I would just go to no. daycare sometimes. And Mitch was going to elementary school, right? American elementary school? Uh, yeah. And you actually were in a 
uh, preschool. Um, the second year we lived there, I had you in a preschool. So this base, uh, or so, so let's talk about this first bombing incident that you both of you guys were involved with. This took place at Harnica House, which is uh, which is uh, institute. Now it's called the Max Planck Institute, and it was a place where I think fifty years, before, seventy years before we were there, Albert Einstein had given an important lecture there, and it's mm-hmm. a famous place. When we were there, it was the U.S. Army's, US um, Army's Officers Club. So what was going on the day that you were at this Harnick House? Why don't you tell me about that? I, th- I think Mitch was in school, and maybe I, I was across the street at Yeah, the... you were at Kinder Keller, which was, um, um, it was just daycare. And I could drop you off and... Um, pick you up, you know, if I went into town or if I went to the officer's club. So what was going on that day? It was um, um, morning coffee that um, it was an off- for the officer's wives. And I can't remember how often we had those. Might have been once a month, might not have been. I just can't quite remember. But um, anyway, we were in the dining room we were not dining we were having coffee and tea and that sort of thing and just milling around and chit-chatting and and then you had mentioned that it, even though obviously you're not in the military you tend to follow military protocol in terms of who's oh, yeah. in charge who's the officer in charge how did yeah. that work well we had a general um for berlin brigade and his wife and so um, protocol was that um, we tried very hard not to leave whatever event we were attending, not to leave until after she had left. So on that particular day, we were just finishing up with the um, coffee and tea, and she left. And so most of us were still standing around and chit-chatting, and about seemed like about three minutes later when she came running back into um, the large um, dining room and said, uh, told us, ladies, um, grab your purses and get the hell out of here. We've had a bomb threat. Hmm. So we all ran out. So how many women were, were with you at this point? You know, I honestly can't remember. I would... My, if I were to hazard a guess, I would think maybe 30 or 40. I don't know. And then, um, so you ran out. Um, did you see Dad when you were? Oh, yeah. We almost had a head-on collision. Uh, he was running into the building as I was running out. And so I asked him what was going on, and he, he just yelled at me, get the hell out of here. And, um, you know, go home. So I did. You went to pick me up, though, across the street. Oh, right? yeah, I did. Yeah. So, okay. So, Dad. Yeah, obviously. I mean, that's no way I was going to leave you there. So, Dad, um, now tell me about what you guys said. You guys probably got a phone call. It sounds like the way Mom's describing it is that they called this in, said we left a bomb. It doesn't sound like somebody found it or or... or did, or is it your understanding somebody did find it? No, somebody, somebody found it, and they called, called for us to come 
Check it out. Okay, so it maybe was a, a warning. So, okay, so you guys got the phone call. You're at your base, what, maybe a mile away? About that, yeah. Um, and how many of you guys pack up and head out? Do you have, like, kits ready to go, or how does that work no, when you get a phone call? We had tools in the truck. And how many in your crew came out? Well, I think there was four of us that went. Now, you're the head of the department, but do you take the lead in actually defusing these things? Not necessarily. Uh, what about in this case? No, I think uh, Sergeant Brown was the one that actually worked on it. So you go running into the building, run downstairs into the restaurant. Do you go out the door because it's on the outside? How did that work? Tell me, tell me about how it went. Oh, if I remember correctly, we went out the back door and around the corner to it. And what did you see? Well, we saw the this flower pot sitting on the windowsill. Checked it out. And so why don't you step me through that? What what does it mean checking it out and, and doing that? T tell me about what it looked like and what the steps you took. Well, that uh, I don't think it was clay. I think it was one of those cardboard jobs. Oh. And it was... Filled and it was covered with uh, some kind of uh, clay or goo or stuff that sealed it. And it had all of the mechanisms face down in it so that you couldn't see what it was doing and some wires sticking out. So how would you know it's even a bomb other than it just looks out of place if it was all covered? It had the feel of it and looked similar and we could see some of the wires and uh, back of the clock and stuff like that. So what did you do at this point? What did Sergeant Brown do with this particular thing? No, if I remember correctly, we cut into the side of it so that we could see what was in there and found the power source and disconnected it. You know, nowadays when people watch movies like The Hurt Locker, bomb defusal is a very complex procedure with a lot of things such as robots, such as blast suits, such as very specialized tools. What what kind of specialized tools did you use? Oh, we used our hands and hammers and stuff that uh, you normally have. So there's no robots in 1970. Nope. Not much in the way of blast suits. Nope, neither one. So you're just using your sheer technical skill. Basically, yeah. So, what kind of uh, um, explosive? Um, what kind of explosives were they using in this particular thing? Oh, I think it was RDX. I'm not sure. What is RDX? That's a uh, explosive they use in uh, shells. Units. So this is so. So, how do you think they would have acquired something like that, or do you know? I have no idea. It's it's not a plastic explosive though. No. Um, was there? bearings, BBs, uh, shrapnel in there? Not in this one, no. Um, what kind of damage do you think it would have done where it was at? Oh, it would probably taken the windows out and probably knock the tables and chairs around. Is it the possibility it would have killed somebody? Well, if they'd have been sitting close to it, yeah. Yeah. And um, so describe what, what it looked like when you took it off to the side. You're talking about a power source. What, what were we looking at in there? A couple of batteries. What kind of batteries? What size? And No, if I remember right, they were 9-volt. So that's all it took is 9-volt batteries. Doesn't take much, no. 
So and it so it's basically an alarm clock that's going on, and when that one hand goes over it, it completes a circuit yep. and goes off. And do you have any recollection how much time there was left on this unit? Uh, we couldn't tell for sure because they didn't. They took the clock uh, the way it was set up. You couldn't really tell. Did you guys pick it up and take it away from the building, or did you just yeah, work on it? Took it out in the back there where it was open and worked on it. Um. So when one person's working on it, what kind of assistance can you and other people provide? Well, they run into something they're not sure of. They can ask us. Are are you? Watch, but what. but but are you like staying way away? Is it a solitary thing, or do you are no, you right there? Usually, two of us are right there, and two of us will be back in the back area. So um, so, mom, at this point, are you certain? You're just hearing there's a bomb. Did you? What point did you hear from Dad that, wow, this is a real bomb? Do you remember coming home that night and hearing about it? Well, uh, your dad told me they discovered the bomb when he arrived home. But until he actually arrived home, I didn't know for sure. But I do know that I, after he described it to me and where it was placed, I was standing very close to that window where it was, where it was discovered. Um, How did that make you feel thinking about that later, that there was you a... Know, I, I think I was kind of stupid at that time. Uh, there was a lot of terrorist activity going on during that time, and um, I... While it was scary, I don't think I really understood the full import of that until years later. Uh, for one thing, your dad never really told me much of what he was involved in. So, But what I saw was what I read in the newspaper um, when we went to the PX or the commissary, we'd drive through that area and they'd have mirrors that they would run underneath the car. They'd open the trunks. Uh, when we entered the PX of the commissary, we'd have to open our purse and they'd look in to make sure that we weren't carrying a gun or explosives or anything like that. So that tells you it was pretty dangerous during that time. But... um I don't know. When you're right in the middle of all that terror, terror it's a little bit different from um, when you're living far away from it. I think people sometimes who live far away from it understand the seriousness of it more than those of us who are right there. Because we're still continuing to li live our own everyday life. But as I also said, your dad didn't, uh, he either couldn't discuss it with me or he did not want to discuss it with me because he didn't want to worry me as to what was really going on. Didn't you tell me about some time when you were like, all of a sudden you turn on the news and you see dad, there's some train derailment? And uh, well, that was actually here in the States. That was actually in Vancouver, Washington, yeah. You turn on the news and there's a dad. 
And then that was on the news. Like every night was the lead in to the news. Every night, it seemed to me it went on for months. You'd see see him sliding down his butt off the train or something. You remember that, Chuck? Yep. <laughs> what was that, Dad? Oh, on a bridge on I-5 in Salem, they had a crane on the back of a flat car and it boom come loose and it hit the bridge and derailed the train. They had two cars loaded with ammunition. One was a 106 millimeter uh, recoilless rounds and the other was 82 mortars. Geez, so that would have been a big explosion had that stuff gone off. Yep. Yeah, but we got to watch him every night on the news or leading into the news. So, okay, so in Berlin, were you, did you get a sense though that of about these student protests and about these people that had this anger towards American policy or maybe their own government's policy? Was that, was there a sense of that? Because I, all, talking to you guys, I sense mostly that you had extremely positive feelings about the Germans you knew and the, and the city and the people. But there was obviously a lot of people who were pretty frustrated with yeah. Americans, too. I mean, what's your recollection of the time? I loved living in Berlin. And I did have German friends um, that I spent time with. And um, it was just, it was great. I absolutely loved it. And when I left there, I wanted to go back. I, and I never have. How many years ago was that? 37 or so. Yeah, I'm, it's just shocking that I have never made it back to Berlin. So, Dad, let's talk about, um, you, you've told me in the past, you figure you may have ended up diffusing as many as like, or you and your crew, obviously, as, as many as like seven different um, bombs by this by these groups that were that were left around the American sector. Tell me about some of these other um bombs that you remember diffusing? Oh, the one I remember most was the one at Temple Hall Fair Base at the bottom of the, uh, oh, the statue that they put up to commemorate the airlift. They had a static 740, or a C-47 there, and they put two bombs there one out in the open and one up in the wheel well. And so I guess. so you guys show up there. You, you hear about this bomb, which you didn't you guys have a, didn't Temploff is this enormous, amazing air base. It's mm -hmm. this Nazi era air base. It, it's incredibly beautiful in a sense. It's, I think it's an Albert Speer design sort of shaped metaphorically like an Eagle. Um, and didn't you guys have like a bunch of underneath Templehof? There's tons of tunnels and, and stuff. And didn't you have some, some stuff down there that you worked under? And Oh, they had, uh, I think it was six levels underneath Temple Hall. And uh, you could drive down there, like trucks, semi-trucks and everything. And we had offices down there for when we went on alert so that we moved up out there instead of where we were at so that we had a little cover we was where we was at was four floors down so you get a phone call saying there's been bombs or, or a bomb reported at Templehof. that must have taken a good 15 20 minutes to get out there oh the way we went probably took us 
10 to 12 minutes. So you get out to Teploff. You're out on the tarmac uh, in front no, of this. It was out in front of the entrance there. Oh, so it's over by that actual arch statue. It was right by the arch statue. So just so to let people know what my dad is talking about, they have these, the Berlin Airlift, they they came from three different cities into Berlin um, and flew into Tempelhof. So they have this beautiful arch that kind of radiates out with three ribs to signify the three cities and it's half of an arch no it was representative of the, the three quarters that the planes flew yeah mm-hmm. exactly and uh, you're right i meant yeah, that and, Berlin and they um and the and it, it looks sort of like the first part of an arched bridge it's sort mm-hmm. of a section of it so the plane was out there and you guys pull up and at first, you're you're working on this bomb that's down by the wheel. Tell me mm-hmm. about that, and what, what and who was working on that? No, I was working on that one, and then somebody was with me up there, and they looked up and saw the other one up in the wheel well, and I forget which one of the guys worked on it. But so when you're having a bomb down below, and then one kind of hidden up there, what does that tell you? Well, that says that the guy's probably trying to blow my butt up. You specifically, you and your crew specifically, yeah, was going to work on it. So why? So why? Why do you think they were doing that? What's your th- thinking there? Well, probably because we took we made safe two or three of their bombs before. So they're trying to take you guys out. You think? I think so. So, um, how long did it take you to defuse those bombs? Well, I think we spent about ten minutes on them. And is is this something you take them, remove them, or you work on them right there? Oh, we worked on them right there. We tied some rope to them and shook them to see if they was sensitive to movement. So you tie a rope and you're getting way back and mm-hmm. then shaking them to see what happens. So if they do blow up, you're probably going to be safe yeah. at that point. Now, did um, did uh, do you, can you tell me what they look like? Do you remember what they look like? I don't remember what they what those two looked like. Was it also that what did you call it, RDX? Um, I think so, but I don't, I'm not positive. So can you remember any other um, bombs that you had dealt with? I don't recall what the, they were. It's been so long now. But do you remember, was it like similar things you get called out and it might be and it's somewhere in the American sector? You remember, you don't remember any specific incidents? No, just they weren't, they weren't really big ones. And so it didn't make too much of an impression on us. So... In May, uh, and we're, not, we're still, I, I still haven't tracked down a lot of the date on these bombs, so I'm not really sure when they happened. I'm assuming it's 71 or 72. In May of 72 is when the Bader Meinhof group launched their big bombing campaign, and they killed um, Lieutenant Colonel Paul Bloomquist in Frankfurt. And he's really the first casualty, the first American casualty of this left-wing German terrorism um, but it could have easily been you guys. And um, and history would have been a lot different because um, the movement June 2, which I later realized this had to be the group that was dealing with it, um, they sort of were always considered peripheral. They weren't a central group because everybody's heard of the Bader Meinhof group. But had they, I guess in one sense, encountered somebody who wasn't as good at defusing their bombs it's possible that they would have been much more prominent or whatever. Um, I'm sure you guys heard 
or I told you about a, a few days ago, um, Verena Becker, um, who was a former member of both the June 2nd movement and the Bader Meinhof group, um, was recently indicted in the murder of Siegfried Buback in uh, April of 1977. He was federal prosecutor. He's effectively like the attorney general kind of of Berlin. And he was murdered uh, apparently by her also Christian Klars and Newt Faulkner's. And after all these years, they've decided to indict her because they feel they have DNA evidence that can tie her to this crime. But also, she very clearly was a part of the movement June 2 when these bombs were going off. And it's highly likely she was one of the people that planted some of those bombs. So so I, so for me, it kind of hit me like a, like a sock in the gut when I was hearing that she was being indicted. Because this is a woman who could have changed my personal history, could have murdered one or both of my parents. And um, how, did, how did it make you feel when I was telling you guys about that? Mom, when, when I told you about Verena Becker being arrested, what are your thoughts about this woman who possibly could have murdered you almost 40 years ago, knowing now she's been arrested and she's possibly going to go back to prison? Uh, well, stunned. I really had no idea that this woman existed, to tell you the truth. So um, to know that she's still around and there seems to be a certain amount of credible evidence to demonstrate her guilt, it is rather stunning. Um. Nobody, to my knowledge, was ever charged or prosecuted in any of the bombings, the attempted bombings, with where you guys were. Um, at this point, not that, not that, not that it, with her, but is this the kind of thing where you're going, well, whatever, let bygones be bygones, oh. or do you think that for those attempted bombings, is that something that people should still be held accountable, or what's your thoughts on that? Absolutely, they should be held accountable. Uh you know, I mean, they commit criminal activities or they engage in criminal activities, then um, they should be held accountable for what they've done. Certainly for murder. Mm -hmm. um, I think in the in the case of the Bader Meinhof group and others, a lot of stuff it, it's it's so traumatized that country that there is often a big movement just to go. Well, a lot of people have been convicted. A lot of people are dead. Let's just forget about it. But there's actually some specific crimes where people have not been convicted of, and I think that's or not directly been tried with, even though there's evidence. And I think that's the case with the Siegfried Buback murder. Dad, when I told you about the arrest of or the indictment of Verena Becker, what was your thoughts? Doesn't make much difference to me one way or the other. Back then, did you put a lot of thought into these people that were trying to kill you? Nope. Why not? All I worried about was doing my job and getting taking care of the stuff. I wasn't worried about them. These are people that wanted to kill you. And that didn't bother you or didn't 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 you didn't spend a lot of time thinking about why or what was going on? No. I spent a year in Vietnam and there's people wanting to kill me there too. So, you know, I, the the thing that I've been struck with as I've been studying these over the over the last decades decade is that um you know had they killed you dad and possibly mom but specifically dad 
they would have clearly, they wouldn't have known who you were. But after the fact, they would have probably learned about your service in Vietnam, your service running the ammunition dump, and they would have justified your murder based on the fact that you were part of the apparatus that was waging this imperialist war in Vietnam. To me, that's like the hardest thing for me to address because, because you know, they just simply would justify it. And, and, um, and a lot of people would nod their heads. Yep. This is, they're just, they're, he's part of the process. Um, so, so, so for the longest time, dad, you thought it was the Bader Meinhof group. Um, and when I told you, and I told you, you know, no, it's actually probably this June 2nd movement, but it still didn't seem to make a whole lot of difference to you. Um, do, do you ever think back to these times or this time and think about, does it ever anger you that people wanted to kill you like that or? No. You are an interesting guy, dad, let me tell you. <laughs> so when mom describes how, you know, part of the reason I find that funny is because I didn't learn about any of this until I was like almost 30. And we were learn we were talking about the Unabomber one day because they just captured him and you had mentioned to me, um... Well, the FBI, they don't know what they're talking doing when it comes to bomb disposal. And I said to you, what are you talking about? How would you know? He goes, they don't know what they're doing. I've taken the train. I've taken twice as much train as they have. And mind you, at this point, I'm 30 years old, and I had no idea what you did in the Army at all. I didn't even <laughs> recollect it. So I was in disbelief, and you said, well, I've done it. I defused Bader Meinhof bombs. And I thought, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> so I got some books and I started reading about this fully assuming you were feeding me a bunch of baloney <laughs> and I got these books and I started realizing, realize, Oh my God, dad was kind of at a central point in this one aspect of cold war history. He was on the front lines and, um, and what I thought was amazing about this was this was incredibly fascinating to me. I've spent the past 12 years fully immersed in this stuff Yet you, I don't think, spent 12 minutes immersed into it. You didn't seem to put a, a lot of energy into thinking about that. And, and my thoughts on that were twofold. One is they clearly picked the absolute right guy for the job. That's what you would want. That's the kind of person you'd want doing EOD. Some guy who it doesn't really put a lot, it doesn't matter to them. They have a job to do and they do it. Um, and on a number two level, I think I would make a horrible EOD person because I could never stop talking about something like that <laughs> had it happened to me. Um, I clearly have talked about your experiences in Berlin much more than my experiences. But that said, so I've spent the last 10 years looking at this. I've been in documentaries. I'm working on a book. I've got this prominent website. I've been interviewed a lot. What is your thoughts, Dad, that this aspect of your life ended up becoming such a big part of my life? I have no idea. You, you haven't thought about it? You haven't? No. I haven't you really found it kind of interesting to follow how I've looked into it? No. I enjoy reading about it, but that's about all. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of the Hurt Locker? Um, the kind of people they had in that movie? Oh, I thought it was a great movie. Uh, but what about the characters? Did it, was, it seem like somebody you would recognize as an EOD person? Was uh, It was a movie, and... Uh, it wasn't real. Because the thing that struck me of the movie was they had this hot-headed guy who was taking chances, you know, for a variety of reasons. And my take on it was 
having talked to you and talked about other EOD people was, again, it was a great movie. I mean, I enjoyed it. I'm glad it won the Oscar. But my sense is that a guy in that position might take chances once, and after that he would never be allowed to be EOD again. Is that... I don't think he'd have ever made it through school. He would have washed out. I questioned that, too. And I, I saw the movie. I thought it was a great movie, but I didn't see it to be entirely valid. You know, I can't imagine how tense it would be to actually defuse a bomb. Every once in a while, I'll actually play a video game where your job is to hold something steady and move through it. Mm -hmm. And even that, I find myself shaking, and there is no stakes other than you have to start again. And with a bomb... I mean, one thing about that movie that really did help was for you to understand how tense it was. So I'm thinking, hey, how did Dad do that? And then how did he stop doing that and then start selling appliances and roofs for Sears and Roebuck? <laughs> it would seem to me you would have a sort of, you'd need an outlet for some of this energy. Did you ever think, I need to do something exciting like that again? No. So at the time, though, was it, interesting and fun did you get a rush out of it or 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 no, not it was a lot more interesting and better than being in the infantry or artillery or something like that so you signed up and this was actually your second stint in the army you'd signed up when you're 17 and actually mm -hmm. were in berlin but you signed up again why did you select eod well they paid 75 dollars a month extra pay for being in it so it was it was kind of like hazardous duty pay full yeah. all the time. So a good reason to sign up was it paid better. Yeah. Did you did it, you think that there was any risks going to be associated with that? No, I wasn't too sure what it was all about when I signed up for it. Hmm. You have to think seventy five dollars a month back then was a lot Hang more on, you money. Got to quit patting Ruby. It's gonna it's gonna yeah. go on. Sorry, our dog is here visiting, <laughs> getting love. $75 in the early 60s, that's a lot of extra money. Mm -hmm. That's that's like one and a half times pay, isn't it? No, I was making about uh, $175 a month. Yeah. So yeah, that's like 30% extra or, or, or almost 40, 45% extra. That's a lot of extra money. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, you had to have enjoyed excitement. I mean, you had a you had a Studebaker Avanti that was capable of going 160 miles an hour. You had a Ford Thunderbird. Nowadays, it's hard to imagine you when you pedal along the freeway at 45 miles an hour. It's hard to imagine you, but you must have enjoyed excitement when you were younger. Yeah. <laughs> Dad, you're the least talkative person on the planet Earth. It is like pulling, <laughs> pulling wisdom teeth <laughs> to get nuggets <laughs> out of you. I'm doing my best not to ask yes-no questions. <laughs> oh, my God. So, Mom, what's your thoughts about me spending the last 10, 12 years with this kind of odd sideline of learning and, and uh, about terrorism. What's your been thoughts about following me as I've been researching? And well, I'm not surprised. It is interesting. I've learned a lot that I did not know, um, you know, about your dad's work. I've learned it through what you've learned. So, Well, I'll tell you, you know, one thing about this for the longest time when I would start researching this, Dad's attitude was very influential in mine. Dad sort of had this attitude like he expressed earlier that 
this is my job. I didn't spend two seconds thinking about these people. And when I when we went back to Germany together about 10 years ago, I thought, you know, maybe I'll try to track down some of these people because they've been in prison. They're, you know, off doing their own thing, but they're they're basically not terrorists anymore. And I thought, God, I'd love to interview. I'd like to get one of them in the same room with dad because I kind of had the same attitude. I'm extremely fascinated by the, these people. I find them uh, in the bottom IF group, in the June 2nd movement. I find them very intriguing as people who made crazy choices in their lives. But I find it really fascinating. But I really didn't have um, an attitude about them in terms of anger, hatred, uh, respect, anything. It just I just was interested in them. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I, I could easily get in there and inter in a room and it would be interesting to have, here's a guy that tried to kill my dad. Here's the guy that defused his bombs. It would be, it would make for interesting, like, like a documentary or an interview. And a, so well, I, I thought about doing that. Now, here's the thing though, over the last couple of years, I, as I've read a lot more, I've started to develop a different attitude towards them. I've started to get more, I don't know, I wouldn't say emotional, but more, I get the feeling like if I were to interview some of these people, I could I could do it really dispassionately. And then there might come a certain point when I would get angry. And talking to somebody who was talking about laying these bombs out that could have killed my parents, and I'm wondering if I might not leap across the table and wow. beat the shit out of them. Yeah. Because, yep. because every once I'll, I'll see interviews with some of these former members and I find them really interesting. There's an interview with um, the, one of the guys in the Red Army faction that took over the Stockholm embassy in 1975 in an effort to release some prisoners. And they immediately shot this military attache, this German guy. And, um, and you hear him talking about this and he, regrets it and he says well i accept collective responsibility for this i'm not going to say who pulled the trigger and and i also say it was uh tactically it was really dumb to just kill people right away and as i'm hearing him talk about this i'm not hearing i'm hearing a lot of evasion i'm not i'm he's he, he's still kind of defending what he did he's saying we had the wrong tactics but we clearly needed to kill people and i'm not going to tell you the individual who did it we're all part of it and as i'm listening i'm just getting madder and madder and I'm thinking, man, if somebody was talking about 40 years ago, basically, yeah, they were willing to turn me into an orphan. I'd just get madder about it. Well, you know, if it were, if they were in a legitimate army that, you know, or military um, of a different, of another nation, and your dad's military was fighting there, you know, was involved the U.S. military fighting the German military or something like that. But uh, the case you're describing is where you've got a bunch of terrorists. And, you know, I... So they're not legitimate in the first place. Well, to play devil's advocate, here's how they would describe it. They would say, hey, America is fighting this illegitimate war in Vietnam, which yeah. you and I probably agree with, Dad might yeah. not agree with, but it was this ridiculous war. Yeah. And... They, we need to open, this is actually, they saw it as part of a bigger yeah. picture, a bigger revolution. And they thought we need to open a new front to that Vietnam War. Mm. We are comrades. So they, yeah. they themselves, whether we agree with it or not, they certainly would have said, no, we are soldiers. We are soldiers mm -hmm. opening up a new front. 
So I could see how they could justify yeah. their own minds. Okay. It would just, it would just, it just makes anyway, me angry thinking anyway, about that. Anyway, getting back to your original point, um, yeah, you you don't know for sure, but you may not be able to interview those people properly. Um, so, Ma, I'm so Dad, you're. I, I'm sorry, Ma, I don't mean to cut you off on that. So, Dad, that it. Um, when, during this time, do you remember like when those posters came out, or do you remember um, hearing about the Bader Meinhof group or yeah, anything like that? I saw the posters in the military uh, building next to the uh, where I worked, uh, next to the uh, consulate. And um, when you saw that, what was your thoughts about that seeing these posters, especially like with women and men? I don't know. I just saw an awful lot of people on the posters, but. It was shocking to see women, and especially that many women. It seemed like it was half and half, wasn't it? Pretty half much. women, half men. That was pretty shocking back then. Did, was it your guys' sense that, um, I mean, did it feel like all of a sudden, do you remember when the bombs, when they started laying all the bombs in Frankfurt and Munich and and what was your what was what do you remember about that time in May when it seemed like America was under attack in Germany? Bomb. Uh it was scary. I I do remember seeing the headlines, and I think we had just been to Frankfurt not too long before that, um, and uh, and then so knowing that that was taking place in an area where we had just been to. Um, you know, it was frightening. Dad, what are your thoughts about that? Well, they were pretty dramatic. So, let me ask you, yeah. all this research you've done, what do you think the difference between the bombs in Berlin and the bombs in the Federal Republic of Germany, what was the difference between them? Um, you're talking about the bombs that were left in Germany, basically the June 2nd bombs and the ones in, uh, that the bottom Meinhof left, basically. Yeah, the Federal Republic of Germany, they... I don't know, what are you getting at? What do you mean, the difference? Well, what, what difference? How, how did it differ? Well, the ones, first of all, the ones in Berlin, or in the Federal Republic went off and actually killed people. Um, the, 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 um... Like, for instance, um, and it's hard to, because I don't know the specifics about that. You hear different reports about what they were made from and other stuff. Um, but talking to some people, they say, well, they must have had access to plastic explosives. And others say, no, 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 no. It was this, that. I haven't actually gotten a straight answer about a lot of that. But the ones across the federal public, you know, it's hard to know. It's hard to know why none of the ones that the that um the June 2nd movement did went off except for the one in uh 72 that that boat builder in um in the at the Berlin Yacht Club found and he found it and started banging on it and it blew up. Other than that, it's hard to know why they none of them really went off other than you guys were finding them if somebody was calling him in or I don't know what the story was. The big difference was is in Berlin people were finding them and we got a chance to go work on them. Yeah. And the others nobody found them until they went off. So the question there is is um, is were they being called in and reported or were they literally just being found? Oh I think they were 
basically being found. I don't think they were putting them. They wanted they weren't hiding them and uh, anything like they did down in Frankfurt. How much of a time frame do you think before they left the bombs before they were found? Oh, you'd never tell. They could have had timers set anywhere from ten minutes to twelve hours. Because the ones in. Um, like a lot of the ones during the campaign of May '72, they were they were they were set off with minutes. They were dropped minutes before they went off. For instance, the one in uh, Frankfurt, um, where I interviewed um, Larry David Young, he he was saying, "Yeah, no, I'm I, I was having a conversation with Gudrun Enslin moments before one of those bombs went off. She was still there. She saw the devastation that wrought." Um, so they were they were there witnessing. It wasn't one of these we're gonna leave it and let anybody find it. I think they wanted minimal chance that people could find it. So they were setting those and dropping them off with five ten minutes to spare, maybe. So the other thing is the way you're describing your bombs. I'm wondering if the bombs down in the Federal Republic were much bigger or more powerful. Yeah, I think they were quite a bit bigger. Because you see the damage, like the one that was in, although it didn't kill anybody, they they did a bomb in the in the Bundeskriminal, the the BKA offices in Munich, and it was let off in the parking lot. And my God, it looks like a nuclear explosion went off there. I mean, the cars are just strewn strewn like like uh, matchbox cars all over the parking lot. It was just a huge, huge bomb. Um, remember we when we were looking at the bomb in. Um, in in uh, in Heidelberg, they had two bombs. Remember the other one? They tried to knock over that communications tower. Uh, they wouldn't let me film it because I guess it's still secret. But of course, there, what was the problem with that? Why didn't it knock over? Well, you're out in air. There's nothing to contain it to make it. It would just blow past all the the legs holding up the communications well, tower. Probably about the same as having a hundred mile an hour wind going through. I thought it was interesting, though, that the the guy who was there said, yeah, but it left a big dent in the um, parking lot. And he said that in the concrete, just kind of pushed it down. Mm -hmm. And he said he for 20 years later, he said every time we walked by there, rain would puddle in that puddle. And it would always remind him, oh, yeah, that's where that Mm -hmm. bomb was. Well, that's because you had resistance when you hit the ground. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it was like this perfect round dent from Mm -hmm. the bomb. And it, it's to him, it was this constant reminder. He'd walk by there, even if he hadn't thought about the bomb, he'd see that he'd see water puddling up in there, and he just he just didn't. It, it, it was a reminder of the bomb. So, so is there any last thoughts we have about the Bader Meinhof era and the June second movie? Any questions you guys have of me, Mom? Oh, well, I can't think of anything right now, Dad. No, I think we covered it pretty good. So you're not going to go with something else? This is probably more than I've heard from you on the subject, Dad, in the last <laughs> 10 years, cumulative even. Well, <laughs> I can tell you the difference in EOD in my day and now. What's that? Well, in my day, we handled uh, all the civilian calls. We handled all the military Nowadays, all the police forces have their own bomb squad, so the military doesn't go out in the civilian area for any calls or anything like that. And they're often trained at the same place. Oh, yeah. Uh, but they, they take a shorter course. Yeah. 
So, so when you were stationed at Fort Vancouver, you'd be dealing with stuff in Eugene, Oregon, up to Chehalis. Mm-hmm. Well, we covered most of Washington, uh, Idaho, uh, Oregon, Oregon, and uh, northern three counties in California. And when you were in Berlin, there was we we're in the American sector, but they had a British bomb disposal unit and a French bomb disposal unit, correct? Yep. And was it the British pretty highly trained because a lot of these people were they were dealing with the provisional IRA bombs? Well, yeah, they they all had been over to Ireland and worked over there. So in a sense, they were some of the most experienced. Yeah, yeah. But your dad was getting training all the time too. Seemed like it, you were going to what Redstone? Oh, we went all over. We would go to. Redstone, Arsenal, and... Uh, was that Alabama? Uh, Huntsville, Alabama, right where NASA was testing all of their rockets. They and then fired Mar- up the Saturn V while it was there. And then wow. Indian, Indian Head, Maryland. <laughs> okay, well, I want to thank you guys for um, spending time sharing your recollections of Berlin... 19, circa 1970 to 72. And thank you very much. Bottom line.